Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to begin at verse 10. Our topic is standing against the devil, part 1. We studied the devil, now we're going to learn how to stand against him, according to the Apostle Paul from the book of Ephesians. I'll begin with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We'll stop there. As Paul draws to the close of, this of his epistle to the Ephesians, he has, a, he has a section on how to wage war against Satan and win. In this section, the apostle has followed his normal pattern of, pattern of letter writing by first focusing our attention on the doctrine of God's sovereign grace and saving sinners through Christ. <clears throat> this is his normal pattern. You look at Romans. Doctrine, salvation, focusing on salvation, and then what we would call more practical matters, sanctification. Of course, there's nothing more practical than salvation. The redemption of Christ is perfect, complete, and undeserved. He spends a great deal of time instructing us on how we must live as Jesus' disciples. Salvation is God's precious gift that is obtained without works or human achievement of any kind. We are saved by faith in Jesus alone. His precious blood washes away all of our sin, guilt, and liability of punishment, and his sinless life earned eternal life on our behalf. So salvation in the narrow sense of the term, because the scripture uses it in two different ways, the narrow sense of the term which would include regeneration, effectual calling, and uh, our justification, is achieved solely by Christ. <clears throat> it is something we do not merit or do anything except believe. It is received, justification, it is received by the instrument of faith, which itself is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. Faith is non-meritorious, for it is purely instrumental. It grasps what Christ achieved. It's not, we're not saved because of our faith. We're not saved because faith is like a work. We're saved through faith as the instrument that lays hold of Christ. But salvation in the broad sense of the term, 
which includes sanctification and perseverance in the truth and covenant faithfulness, requires great effort and a dedicated lifelong commitment. With sanctification or personal growth and holiness, divine grace and human responsibility come together. You're saved, you're justified solely by Christ. Eternal life is a gift. But once you're saved and you become disciples, now you're required to cooperate with grace, to, to work with the Holy Spirit, to study the Word of God, and grow in grace. And a great analogy, of course, is uh, what happened, God saved Israel from Egypt, which is a, a type of our salvation from the world and Satan and, and death from, by Christ. And what, what is the first thing that happened? They're taken out to the wilderness and they're given the Ten Commandments, God's moral law, and they're to told, now obey this, follow me, do what I tell you, live by this. Were they saved by the law? Absolutely not. <clears throat> were they sanctified by the law? <coughs> by the moral law? Yes, they were. <coughs> the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God, uses the moral law to sanctify. So yes, justification is solely by Christ. Sanctification, or salvation in the broader sense of the term, involves hard work on our part. The means of grace. Now Christ is still the source of our sanctification, in that our union with him in his life, death, and resurrection is the foundation and our source for the spiritual growth the spiritual power to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you can look these up later. The Bible talks a lot about this. Uh, Romans 6, 13, uh, 3 to 18 and 22. Romans 7, 4 to 6. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, which says Christ is our, our sanctification. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Galatians 3, 2 to 3 and 5. And Galatians 5, 16 to 18, etc. But we are fully responsible to look to Christ and use the means of grace that he has given us to grow, overcome, obey, and persevere. We're saved to follow Christ. We're saved to be disciples of Christ and obey him. We're saved to make progress in holiness, to grow in grace, to be sanctified. <clears throat> Although Paul uses a large portion of the epistles of the epistle dealing with interpersonal relationship or applying the second table of law to growth and godliness, <coughs> he devotes the concluding section of Ephesians <coughs> to our war against Satan and his demonic forces. Christians have an unseen enemy hell-bent on their destruction. Paul says our conflict is with the spiritual forces of evil. We have unseen, powerful, experienced, supremely evil enemies to contend with. Consequently, <clears throat> we need the whole armor of God to defeat our incorporeal foes. We need the spiritual armor that Jesus provides for us. Now, obviously, this is extremely important for Paul because he saves it for the concluding part of his epistle. Yes, he's got a big thing on how to be a good wife, how to be a good husband, how to be good children in the Lord, how to treat other Christians, how to be obey the Ten Commandments and all those practical things of sanctification that we all need. But here he's dealing with fighting the forces of evil, the incorporeal forces, the demons and dev the devil. With these thoughts in mind, let us consider Paul's instructions on how to win the spiritual conflict. 
And I'll just read it really quick. Put on the whole armor of God, this is 10 to 18, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So Paul uses the military terminology of his own day. Okay, we no longer wear armor and helmets like they did. Now they have protective headgear and they have protective vests, bulletproof vests and everything. <clears throat> but we don't wear the armor of the Romans, but that's what he's basing this on. His analogy is armor. <clears throat> the theological foundation of his teaching in this section is found in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. The efficacy of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the source or power for a Christian sanctification and victory over Satan. No sinful mortal can fight against the devil in his own strength and win. Can't do it. Just can't do it. Need the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> We can only win if we look to Christ and his redemptive victory and depend on the Holy Spirit and our Lord's intercession for us. The Savior told his disciples, John 15, 5, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For, with, for, uh, <coughs> for without me you can do nothing. Salvation is solely by Christ alone. Sanctification is solely by Christ alone. Do all religions lead to God? The answer is absolutely not. For without Christ, you can do nothing. Christian doesn't do you any good. Buddha Knight has some interesting things to say, but it's, he's, it's completely unnecessary to believe in Buddha. Uh, Muhammad, of course, is a liar and a false prophet and a murderer and a rapist. Uh, Christ is the only way. <clears throat> As Christians, we should have confidence, not in ourselves or our own abilities, but in Jesus' power to save, sanctify, and protect. Now, although he is both God and man in one person, and therefore has infinite power over everything in the universe, he controls the very atoms of the universe, it is our Lord's redemptive power and authority as the theanthropic mediator that is the focus of Paul. The foundation of our sanctification was something earned by him, achieved by him, by his sinless life, by his victory at the cross, his bloody sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection. Paul emphasizes that in Romans chapter 6. Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and death is our victory. Therefore, we should enter combat with assurance that the war has been won even in the most difficult time and the severest persecutions, we must focus our faith on Christ and be courageous. 
Here's what Paul said in Philippians 4, 12 to 13. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When the apostle was buffeted by a messenger of Satan, Jesus said to Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. <clears throat> we don't look at things like the world does. We have to look at things through the lens of Scripture. And you could be suffering, you could be poor, you could be afflicted, and be totally victorious in Christ. The great weakness and infirmities of the fallen human instrument only serves to magnify and throw into relief the great perfection and efficacy of Jesus' saving, sanctifying, and delivering power. The power of the glorified Redeemer Spirit triumphs over all, over all opposition. <clears throat> By virtue of our union with Christ and the possession of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Redeemer who abides in us, it's Christ's Spirit who abides in us, when the, the Holy Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, but he sends his spirit into our hearts, the Holy Spirit, we possess the strength that conquers. 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children. You have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's a great passage to memorize. And there are many passages like this relating to our dependence on God. We'll just look at them very briefly. 2 Corinthians 3, 4-5. We have such trust toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. We must be humbly aware of our own utter weakness so we can trust and know and prove the total sufficiency of God's grace. Through Christ, we receive everything we need to stand up to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and win. Now, does this mean that we are sinless or perfect and never fail in this life? And the answer is no, not at all. We're still sinners. We still have the sinful flesh. That's not gone until we die. That's not gone until we receive our glorified bodies, as far as our flesh is concerned. We must fight each and every day. The goal is habitual obedience or covenant faithfulness. And we will not attain perfection until we are in heaven. In Philippians 2, 12 to 13, the apostle says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's salvation in the broader sense of the term. <clears throat> for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The point here is that if God was not working in us by his spirit, we would not be able to work out our own salvation. In the broad sense of sanctification, personal holiness, and perseverance into the end, we would not be able to bring our salvation to completion without the Holy Spirit. And that's why John in 1 John says, yeah, they left the church. They apostatized. But they were never really of us. But you, beloved, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. The Holy Spirit will preserve you. You will not apostatize, because the Holy Spirit directs you into all truth. God works in us enabling us to believe, giving us a love of Christ and his law, and changing our will so our lives are victorious. Ephesians 2.10 
for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And listen to this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've been saved to serve Christ, and this was all prepared before the foundation of the world. The Word of God never sees any conflict between the sovereign grace of God and the responsibility of man. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit makes the heart new, so that we have faith in Christ and repentance toward God. Yet now that we are justified and possess eternal life, we must take up our cross daily, deny ourselves, and walk that very narrow path to the very end. Matthew seven fourteen. When Jesus discusses false teachers, false prophets, they propose a broad way. Many go in that way. But the true way is a very narrow, difficult path, the path of Christian discipleship. It's not the easy path. It's the hard path. Remember, Jesus is the author or captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2.10. We must look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12.2. Let us worship the Savior, who through his redemptive work gave us his spirit and made us willing. And his prayer for the elect will stand. John 17.11, Holy Father, keep through you your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. after focusing on the power of Christ and our complete need to depend on him. Paul turns to the analogy of weapons for repelling attacks, primarily defensive weapons, temptations, strategies of the devil against us. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Ephesians 6.11 The apostle emphasizes that we need the whole armor, complete armor, perfect armor, no article is to be ignored, for all is necessary in this war. Note that our armor must be of divine institution and appointment. In our fight for Christ's kingdom, we are to wage warfare only as our Lord commands is in his inspired word. The means of grace are, called, are God's means. We don't come up with them. God comes up with them, and he gives them to us. Men are not to decide, invent, create, or appoint their own means, or even partial means. Our Lord and Savior has prescribed precisely how we are to fight. If we ignore him, or we make up our own battle plans, we will fail. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. They are spirit-given. And we are empowered by the Spirit. Not carnal, 2 Corinthians 10.4. If we are to win our daily battles against the forces of darkness, we must master the word of God and obey it. <clears throat> now he alludes to the Roman armor of his day. Helmet, breastplate, shield. Doesn't talk a lot about offensive weapons. He does mention the sword, but not the spear. Roman soldiers carried spears and swords. He does mention the sword. He adds girdles, or waistband, and shoes, which are technically not armor, but are essential for the soldier's combat. <clears throat> the focus in this passage is on a proper de defense against Satan's attacks. He does mention a sword, but it's not emphasized. 
Since Paul uses the whole Greek halos, which means all, whole, or complete, it could be inferred that Paul has in mind both offensive and defensive weaponry. Yet he only gives us a sample of what he has in mind. The waste is girded with truth, yet the word of God is also an offensive weapon that spiritually conquers the whole world. And he does mention the sword. In any case, the focus is primarily on defensive weapons, but toward the end he mentions the sword, which is the word of God, which of course comprises our defense and comprises our offense. It is crucial that we rely on the weapons that God has provided and not turn to gimmicks, humanistic gimmicks, or legalistic methods. Sinful men have a tendency to rely on their own inventions and wisdom instead of the arms God has provided. In the papal church, men turn to asceticism and monasteries were a flight from the world to fight the devil, and they failed miserably. And they found out in between the convent and the monastery where the men were, the men were having sex with the nuns, and they were, the nuns were getting abortions, and, killing the, and there was infanticide, and they were killing the babies. Monasteries don't work. Asceticism doesn't work. Going out in the desert and sitting on a pole doesn't work because the human heart is corrupt doesn't work. you got to follow God's method, not the Roman Catholic method, which they got, of course, from Greek thinking. It comes from Neoplatonism. They ignored the word of God and relied on superstitions, rosaries, invocations of dead saints, mariolatry, pilgrimages, and various flagellations. <coughs> Fundamentalists ignored the law of God and focused on things like tobacco, cigarettes, alcoholic beverages, and card games, and so forth. In the process, they placed their children in state schools and became, became largely antinomian. So they're complaining about tobacco and alcohol, and they're handing their kids over to satanic state schools to be indoctrinated in Satanism. Now, the trend in our day includes a general avoidance of discussing anything considered negative, for example, sin or evil or hell or punishment or covenant sanctions, or anything unpleasant, Satan, demons, covenantal curses, and consequently <coughs> framing everything in terms of pop psychology and positive thinking. And that the greatest example of that, of course, is Joel Olstein. The fight against Satan and the demonic host is ignored, and the enemy is said to be improper thinking. You gotta have a positive attitude. If you have a positive attitude, everything's going to be fine. No talk of hell, no talk of demons, no talk of sin. And people love it. The battle is supposedly between positive affirming thoughts and negative thoughts that hurt prosperity and a happy attitude. The modern American culture of hedonism and materialism is dressed up with religious terminology and perverted humanistic pop psychology and worldly concepts of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient Savior, who is the source of our sanctification, is ignored. For a psychological faith in faith itself. They turn faith into this pop psychology thing where if you have the right attitude, if you have this positive, affirming attitude, your whole life will be great. Whiter teeth, a nicer car, a greater house. You'll be happy. It's a faith as a self-help magical mindset. And Satan, of course, is delighted with this complete perversion of Christianity. 
the gospel message of faith in the person and work of Christ, followed by taking up the cross of self-denial and uh, persecution from the world, has been supplanted by faith as a way to get rich and have a psychological uplift. <clears throat> now, the Bible does have important things to say about prosperity. Don't, I don't deny that. But, they have nothing to do with a psychological mindset, but rather come through a habitually ethical, that is thoroughly biblical way of living. We are saved to apply the moral law of God to every aspect of our lives and to do so habitually. Covenant blessings are connected to covenant faithfulness, not the power of positive thinking. The reason the West did so much better than the rest of the world is the Puritan work ethic and the concept of Puritan work, the, the Christian concept of work as a calling. You're here to work six days a week. We're not here to be have a good time. We're here to work. Now, God will bless us and we will have a good time. But we're here to obey God. Six days thou shalt work and labor and not spend money frivolously on pleasures. The Puritan work ethic. That's what made America the greatest nation on earth. Jesus Christ and his kingdom must always come first and then material blessings may follow. But our concern is always to faithfully obey Jesus and his law word, not to use religion as a means to attain wealth and happiness. <coughs> and you know what Jesus taught Matthew? I think it's Matthew 6. Put the kingdom of God first and all these things will be added unto you. They'll take care of themselves. Just focus on being obedient to me. Focus on being obedient to the word of God. Then all these things will follow. <clears throat> if we do not use the biblical means to wage war against the host of unclean spirits, we may find that we are fighting on the wrong side. Consequently, Paul warned us against humanistic methods in Colossians 2, 20-23, a passage Christians should memorize because they violate it constantly. It applies to worship, it applies to sanctification. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? He's talking about human, human regulations, not from the Bible. <clears throat> do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. It's Neoplatonism. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. gimmicks, humanistic gimmicks. They don't work. They don't work. When fundamentalists were obsessed with making sure you didn't have a beer on Friday night, or you didn't smoke a cigar, uh, they handed society over to Satanists, because they were a bunch of legalists who weren't focused on the moral law of God. They were focused on human commandments. Not only are legalistic and humanistic methods of seeking holiness useless because they do not sanctify, but they are actually harmful. For they are often substituted for what we really need to do. They turn people away from sola scriptura, that is the Bible alone is our sole rule, our sole authority for faith and life or doctrine and ethics, to what does not work at all. <clears throat> we need real armor from God, not the counterfeit trash made up by sinful men. Nothing wrong with drinking in moderation. Don't get drunk. 
I don't even have any objection to having a little tobacco here and there in moderation, but you don't smoke to the point where you get cancer or you don't become addicted to it. You don't let anything have power over you. But when these things become the focus and people are sending their kid to public schools to be indoctrinated by sodomites, we've got a real problem. Now note the armor, that the armor is something that we are required to put on. It is one thing to possess armor that is sitting in a closet collecting dust, and another thing to strap it on and go out to battle. <clears throat> the armor that God gives us is made to be worn, and not set aside until the battle is over. When we go to heaven, our armor will be replaced by white, lustrous robes of glory. Jesus commanded us to be prepared. Luke 12, 35 to 36. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Be like men who wait for their master. We must constantly walk in the graces and duties that this armor represents. And if we do not read, study, learn, and meditate on Scripture and constantly apply it to our lives, we will be sitting ducks for demonic assaults and temptations. You look at evangelical churches today, especially these mega churches. They're soft on homosexuality. They're soft on adultery and premarital sex. They're soft on the law of God. People are completely ignorant of ethics because they're not taught the law of God anymore. Nobody teaches that except Reformed churches and a, a very small minority of re, uh, evangelical churches. They don't teach it. They were corrupted by dispensationalism. So it's a bunch of gimmicks. And what happens? The divorce rate is only slightly less than the pagans around us. The adultery rate is only slightly less than the pagans around us. The fornication rates are only slightly yet less than the pagans around us. They don't have the armor of God. They're not putting on the armor of God. They're resorting to humanistic gimmicks. If we do not pray for the assistance of the Holy Spirit, <coughs> we will be weak, feeble warriors. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Christ has saved you and made you a soldier in his army. Use the armor that he has given you diligently, consistently, and continuously. This is simple stuff, yet people are ignorant today. A lot of people are ignorant. I'm talking about professing Christians are ignorant. Now, the purpose of this armor, verse 11b, is that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. <clears throat> to stand against the devil... And his forces means to hold up, persevere, <coughs> and not fall during these attack, their attacks. The imagery is one of warfare, where great attacks and assaults come against us. But we must hold our ground against the enemy. We must hold up doctrinally and ethically, not compromising with what the Bible teaches one iota. We must stand against and be victorious over temptation, false accusations, tests, and trying circumstances. <clears throat> so instead of doubt and failure, many failures, there must be faith, courage, and a complete refusal to compromise with evil or give in to temptation. We must be prepared. 
for the devil is most likely to attack us when we are the least prepared against him. And we'll look at that. He picks the opportune times to attack. Now the reason we need the armor is the wiles of the devil. The word wiles, Greek, metho, metho, Deia refers to trickery, deceit, craftiness. It is a compound word that combines method with trickery or deceit. That's where we get the word, you know, method. Methodia. <clears throat> Satan is an expert at subtle, clever arguments as to why we should not believe God, that is his word, and should commit sin. In, in the devil's tactic of war, he aims to deceive with great ingenuity. He is adept at equivocation, scripture-twisting, and excuse-making. Remember, Satan deceived Eve when she was perfect and without sin. She didn't have a sinful nature, and he tricked her. Adam went along for the ride to please his wife. <clears throat> he now works on Christians who must contend with a sinful flesh and the allurements of the world. His first and foremost design is to engender doubt or unbelief, for unbelief is the chief root of sin. He then seeks to draw the Christian into some form of sin, whether heresy or ethical violations. Okay, people, people have to understand, when Paul lists the sins of the flesh, one of the first ones he mentions is heresy. It is a sin of the flesh, right next to fornication and adultery and homosexuality. And heresy has actually probably done more harm to the church than things like fornication and adultery, as bad as they are. His third tactic is then to accuse, divide, and cause despair. He seeks to use sin to, come, to cause even more doubt, to draw the professing Christian to even more sin and calamity. <clears throat> and his ultimate goal is to cause apostasy from the faith so that one who was once a professing Christian is now in Satan's army following the devil's plan. And if you look at the statistics, for people who once professed Bible-believing conservative Christianity, how many of those people are now following Satan? You would be shocked. Among evangelicals, it's like 78% of something people fall away. Most people who profess Christ will not go to heaven because they do not persevere in the faith. They don't pick up their, Christ and follow, uh, their cross and follow Christ daily. They do not deny themselves. They eventually fall and they give in to Satan. It's very sad. And that's why we need to be diligent. Am I saying that uh, those who are truly the elect, am I saying that those who are truly believers in Christ can lose their salvation? No. But the problem is that the church is made up of professors, people who profess faith. Not everybody who professes faith has true faith. You have to persevere. We don't know who the elect is. That's not our concern. Our concern is obedience, perseverance. How Satan casts doubts is easy to observe in the arguments used by unbelievers and atheists against God in the Bible. There's the appeal to science, macroevolution, and the supposed great age of the universe. Their tactics were very successful and led to a great apostasy among Christian communions during the late 19th and 20th centuries. Do you realize, if, if, if you're living in 1850, or 1860, even 1870, 
you could go to virtually any church on any corner of the city and people believed in the Bible and people were really Christian and they really obeyed the Bible and followed the Bible. That's not true anymore. The vast majority of churches today have imbibed modernism and they're apostate. They're pro-homosexual, they're pro-abortion, they're pro-socialist, they're pro-democratic, which is satanic to the core. They're a bunch of Satanists. That's because they abandon the word of God in the name of science, so-called. And all of these arguments, I'm not going to get into it, but just briefly, all these arguments are easily answered from a biblical perspective. Even science itself has thrown these theories into crisis. And we could say that the more we know about life and the universe, the less credible such theories have become. <clears throat> when Darwin and the people in the 1800s came up with uh, macroevolution, they thought single cells were extremely simple organisms. Well, we know better now. You're more likely to have a monkey give a monkey a typewriter and a bunch of paper, and you're more likely to have that monkey arbitrarily come up with the Encyclopedia Britannica and type the whole thing than you are to have a single-celled organism come from dirt, sunshine, and air. I don't care how many billions of years you have. And of course, they leave out the fact that the Earth, <laughs> their version of, because they believe that the universe evolved too into the way it is now, and the Earth for millions of years in their view, had no atmosphere. And if you stood on the face of the earth, you'd be killed by uh, radioactive uh, rays from the sun within two minutes. So you have to have life evolve in, a, in an environment in which it can't evolve. And you have to have oxygen produced in an environment where it can't come into being. It's all a complete farce. It's all faith in a, in a religion. It's not scientific at all. Macroevolution is accepted a priori before the facts because the only alternative requires the doctrine of creation. People don't want to believe in that creation because creation says there's a God above us and we're not our own authority. We're not gods. We're not autonomous. We're subject to God. They hate that teaching. The modern theory of the Big Bang tells us that the universe had a beginning or a starting point, that it is not eternal. What it does not tell us is how the supposedly singularity, that little tiny dot that became the whole universe, was there in the beginning or what existed prior to the Big Bang. Think about it. If the supposedly singularity existed for billions of years in stasis, then why did it all of a sudden explode? It was stable or it wasn't stable. There is no scientific explanation for the existence of the singularity or for why it suddenly exploded. It's all a fantasy to explain a universe in which God does not exist. Once again, the atheistic naturalist viewpoint is accepted by faith. The evidence for creation by an infinite personal God is overwhelming. That men are simply unwilling to accept the evidence because they love their sin, human autonomy, and they have an innate hostility toward God. Faith in the infallible, inerrant word of the living God overcomes all such satanic trash. 
I've studied evolution. I studied evolution thoroughly from atheists in college. It is so full of holes. It has so many problems. It's not even, uh, on a scale of 1 to 100, it's not even a 1 as far as believability. It is not scientific. People believe in it because they don't like the alternative, an infant personal God who's going to judge them at the end of time. Now, how the devil seeks to draw Christians into sin is something we need to analyze so we are ready to enter combat. And there are a number of Satan's tactics to consider. First, <clears throat> the devil and his demons seek the most advantageous time for pressing a temptation. They make their approach when the believer is the least prepared. And sin is most likely to be entertained or contemplated in the mind. They have a tactic. Like a regular army in warfare, the time to attack is often as important as the plan to attack or the place to attack. Surprise is a tactic that has worked over and over again. Some examples are as follows. Number one, there is a danger for the person newly converted to Christ. A great danger. In our Lord's parable of the sower, he talks about those who receive the gospel. The wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown, and he's talking about the gospel of the kingdom, in their heart, Matthew 13, 19. The new professor of Christ can expect a vigorous attack. The gospel is new to him. His understanding is rudimentary and feeble. When the de demons learn of a new profession, their battle cry is raised. The new believer can expect attacks and mockery from old friends, from relatives, and acquaintances. Because his knowledge of Scripture is rudimentary, heresies and all sorts of humanistic errors will be pressed upon him. So he needs to be very careful and diligent in learning the truth, praying for illumination and protection, avoiding mockers and Satanists, and emphatically rejecting ungodly counsel. And the best thing to read for that, of course, is Psalm 1, 1 and following. And of course, there are several Proverbs as well. And, of course, Paul in Corinthians, bad corrupt company corrupts good morals. It's my experience, and of others I know that have been evangelistic, that most people who fall away fall away that first year. A lot of them. They just, they just can't take it. They just can't take it. They, can't, they, 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 they don't want to pick up that cross and follow Christ. They want to go to heaven. They like the idea of believing in Christ and going to heaven, but they, can't, they, they won't count the cost. They won't take up their cross and follow Christ, so they won't truly repent. Such people must associate with solid Orthodox Christians and place themselves under the counsel of Bible-believing competent elders. Number two, expect attacks when one is experiencing some serious affliction. <clears throat> In the case of godly Job, the devil received permission to bring calamity on Job's house and even his health. Then he sought to exploit that affliction to bring doubt in Job's mind in order to turn him against God. And Satan even used Job's wife against his faith. After losing, remember their children died, the house was destroyed, everything was taken, their, their, their flocks were taken away, and his, his wife rejected God. After losing her faith in God, she said to Job, 2.9, curse God and die. 
But Job trusted in God, and he rebuked her demonic foolishness. His faith did not waver, because his faith was not in present circumstances, but in God and his word. Present circumstances can beget, become very bad. We've had great depressions. We've had several terrible wars. We've had epidemics. People die. Christians die. Be ready. Be prepared. <clears throat> Number three. Attacks will come when one is setting out to do a great work for God at the beginning of our Lord's ministry when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And he was not only weak and physically, but was severely hungry. The devil made strong efforts to get our Lord to violate God's plan and the plain teaching of Scripture. <clears throat> but Christ prevailed with the sword of the Spirit saying, It is written, Matthew 4, 4 and 7 and 10. The devil raised up wicked, unbelieving Jews to stir up persecution against Paul as soon as he was establishing a mission work in a new city. This happened at several occasions in the book of Acts. But the apostles stood up to fierce opposition, and sometimes he did have to just go to another city and put others in charge. But it didn't stop him one iota. And then we'll look at one more, and we run out of time. Number four. Satan and his forces will attack when one is close to an object of temptation or is drawn into temptation. The devil came to Eve disguised by the snake when she was near the forbidden tree and was admiring its fruit. And you read the text, it's clear. She's looking at it and she's talking, well, it looks really beautiful and boy, it looks delicious. It looks really healthy to eat. Well, has God really said that you shouldn't eat of this tree? I mean, you really, you sure you understand him correctly? Maybe, maybe you're taking things too literally. Maybe you need to spiritualize that away. And then it becomes, God has not said you will die. You will be rewarded if you disobey. Satan comes to Eve when she's look, admiring the fruit. He sought to excite and stimulate any unlawful desires while he simultaneously made lying excuses why violating God's command was a good idea. The devil helped in David's fall. For he was already looking on another man's wife with lust when he should have fled such a sight. The devil loves the wandering eye and the careless Christian who places himself in situations of temptation. If you're tempted to get drunk, you don't hang out in bars. If you're tempted to get drunk, you don't buy a bunch of whiskey and put it in your house. If you're tempted to do this or you're tempted to do that, you avoid the temptation. It's that simple. But we'll continue with this. These are simple principles. But they're taught repeatedly in the Word of God, and they're important for Christians' sin, and Christians fail, and Christians are tempted by the wiles of Satan. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing section of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you've given it to us, that we could know how to fight in this war. We know it's important, for he ends the epistle with this teaching. Help us to understand it, Lord, and grain it into our minds. Cause us to obey it. Bend our hearts to be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.